The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Lever Time, the flagship podcast from The Lever, an independent investigative news outlet. I'm your host, David Sirota. On today's show, we're going to be talking about succession, what has easily become one of the greatest TV dramas of the 21st century. The award-winning HBO series is sadly coming to an end this Sunday night. Today, I'm going to be speaking with the one and only Frank Rich, who's been an executive producer on the show since season one. We're going to discuss the series' critique of legacy media and the corporate media business, as well as its critique of the ultra-wealthy, and its look at American democracy itself. You may remember Frank Rich as a New York Times columnist during the Bush years. He is fantastic. You can see his influence on this show. This is a great interview, not just about a television show, but about the deeper themes that have been explored by this show, themes that are almost never explored on television at all. For our paid subscribers, we're also dropping exclusive bonus episodes into our Lever Premium podcast feed. Last week, we discussed the skyrocketing rent prices in cities across the country with Tara Ragavir, the campaign director for the People's Action Home Guarantee Campaign. And coming up next week is my interview with Adolph Reed about his important new book, No Politics But Class Politics. It argues that what he calls race reductionism is designed to help billionaires and corporations actually kill off the kind of working class politics that arose in the New Deal and the civil rights eras. So stay tuned for that in the Lever Premium podcast feed. If you want to access our premium content, head over to levernews.com and click the subscribe button in the top right to become a supporting subscriber. That'll give you access to the Lever Premium podcast feed, exclusive live events, and all of the in-depth reporting and investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. The only way independent media grows and thrives is because of passionate supporters and by word of mouth. So we need all the help we can get to combat the inane bullshit that is corporate media. So go subscribe. It directly funds the work that we do. I'm here today, as always, with Lever Times producer, producer Frank. Hey, Frank. What's up, David? It's a bittersweet time right now with Succession's ending coming up this Sunday. I know I know you're a big fan of the show. I'm a big fan of the show. And yeah, very, very bittersweet. Although I read I read some commentary recently that they're making the characters so hateable that you don't you actually don't mind the show ending because you can't stand <laughs> looking at them or hearing from them anymore. I mean, yeah, I mean, they've always been pretty abhorrent. It's just that in this last season, they've had the opportunity to uh, exert their horrible abhorrent influence on other people and and American <laughs> democracy. So I do think there is a rule now in TV where no matter how awful and hateable characters are, over many seasons, you at least feel like you get to know them. So even saying goodbye to them, it is kind of bittersweet, even if you hate them. I remember feeling this at the end of Breaking Bad, like I had lived so long with Walter White that mm-hmm. as much as I loathed him by the end, I was also like sad about him leaving, which actually comes full circle because uh, I guess I can do a spoiler alert here. One of the main characters of Succession recently passed away. And 
and mm-hmm. he was hated by uh, other characters. But now that he's gone, they're all feeling bad that he's that he's gone. Uh, I, I do think it's like you get to know people for so long that they just become part of your lives. Uh, but I, I will say I, I am with you. It's it's a bittersweet ending to Succession because I've enjoyed um, watching and hating these characters for a long time, and, and soon enough, I'm not going to be able to watch and, and hate them uh, on a Sunday night anymore. So that's that, that's a bummer. It's it's also just such an entertaining show. It's like at both times a screwball comedy <laughs> yeah. and a Shakespearean drama. It is. I like I there are very, very few things that operate on the level that succession has been. It's very, very difficult uh, having written uh, some things for Hollywood. I can say it's very difficult to to toggle between uh, scenes that make you laugh and scenes that make you horrified. And I feel mm-hmm. like moment to moment on succession, you're like laughing and grossed out and horrified all at the same time. <laughs> that, and that, that is not an easy thing to pull off. Um, now, before we get to our interview uh, today with Frank Rich about the deeper themes of succession, I first want to talk about a huge story that The Lever reported last week. Talk about terrifying and, and, and horrifying. It's about a new freight train route that could threaten one of the American Southwest's only remaining sources of fresh water. Now, like most terrible things that happen in our world, this new train route is being spearheaded by fossil fuel companies, specifically uh, the fossil fuel industry in Utah. They, they want to create, these companies want to create an easier way to transport petroleum uh, from this area in Utah uh, and transport it right along the banks of the Colorado River all the way to the Gulf Coast. Now, you may be thinking, what have you heard about the Colorado River of late? Let's think. Oh, oh, right. It's drying up, right? You've And you may have heard that one in eight Americans, so one in eight people in this country relies on the Colorado River for water. Okay, so let's put, put a couple things together. They're going to put a train route next to the one source of water for one in eight Americans. And they're going to do this in the middle of a derailment crisis. As I ask, what could possibly go wrong? Here's here's the problem in more detail. The Colorado River carries snowmelt from the Rockies down to desert communities. The train's route, it's not just next to the Colorado River. And not just, it wouldn't just go during a a general derailment crisis. It would wind through a specific canyon prone to rock slides and mudslides. And the United States, again, is already averaging around 1,700 train derailments per year. Okay, are you getting the picture here? They're going to try to put a train next to the Southwest's one source of water as it winds through a an incredibly treacherous canyon. By the way, I've been through that canyon a lot. I live out here in Colorado. It's Glenwood Canyon. If you go through there, it's oftentimes it's closed because of avalanches, mudslides, rock slides. Now, I told you that was the icing on the cake. So then you're probably asking, well, okay, it's a fossil fuel industry cake, right? Yeah, it's a fossil fuel industry cake being served on a platter by, wait for it, by the Biden administration, which has already approved the initial permits for the project. Not only that, but the project's backers have taken steps, the initial steps, to apply for special federal 
taxpayer subsidies. They've applied or taken the steps to apply for special bonds from Pete Buttigieg's transportation department that could give them tens of millions of dollars in public subsidies for the project. And shocker of all shockers, despite the pressure to come out, pressure from Democrats and local communities to come out and say this is not acceptable, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg has remained completely silent on whether or not he'd actually approve these bonds. So he hasn't come out and thrown cold water on it. He's just let it kind of kind of fester. I mean, this is a horror movie. Actually, it, it sounds like kind of a scheme, like like something that Logan Roy wouldn't would invest in from Succession. Like it's it sounds like something out of a out of like a comic book villain, doesn't it, Frank? Yeah, it's almost like someone went to the Biden administration and pitched them, you know, high speed rail so people can travel around the country in a sustainable way. And they were like, hmm, that's a good idea. What if instead of people, it was oil tankers? Uh, what if that's what we did instead? <laughs> right. That would be the like dark turn in the horror movie. And and this mm-hmm. is this is happening. I mean, this is this is happening now. Now, I do. I want to say there, there's a silver lining here. Democratic lawmakers, local communities have said this is completely unacceptable. They're trying to sound the alarm. Our story, our reporting, which you can find at Lever News, you you should read it. You should share it with anybody you know, especially people in the Southwest, to make it clear to their local officials that this is not acceptable. I mean, this battle is not over yet. But the fact that this is even on the table is just unbelievably mind-blowing. And we exist, uh, the Lever exists, to try to sound the alarm, blow the whistle, and make sure things like this uh, don't happen. So take a look at that story, and please, please, please share it with as many people as you can. It's at levernews.com. Anyway, we're going to stop there because we should get to our big interview with Frank Rich about the season finale of Succession. Let me just say one thing about this. Whether or not you've watched this show, and, and certainly it's a little better if you've, you've watched the show so you have some context, but the show really is about corporate media, uh, American democracy, and the ultra-rich. So this interview gets into those deeper themes and how difficult it is to get those deeper themes, get a real analysis of those deeper themes on television to a mass audience. So stick around, whether or not you've seen Succession, stick around. It's a great interview. All that coming up after this quick break. Welcome back to Lever Time. For our main story today, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite TV shows, the show Succession. Now, Unless you've been living under a rock for the last five years, you most likely have watched HBO's Succession, or you've at least heard about it. Set in the world of legacy media and cable news, the series follows the Roy family, a group of highly dysfunctional billionaire oligarchs whose petty family squabbles have literally world-shattering consequences. Think Fox News mogul Rupert Murdoch and his family, only officially it's not the Murdochs, even though it kind of sometimes seems like it is. The show is a razor-sharp satire of the influence of corporate media, the uber-wealthy, and the American democratic system. It's also simultaneously one of the funniest screwball comedies and devastating family dramas of the modern television era. The series finale is this Sunday. In my opinion, if the final episode lands as hard as the rest of the series, it'll end up being one of the best TV series ever 
ever made. That's why today I'm talking with Frank Rich, who's had a storied career as a New York Times columnist and essayist. You may remember Frank's columns from the Bush and Obama years. He was one of the only journalists willing to tell hard truths about both political parties during the Iraq war and the financial crisis. He transitioned from journalism into television, first working on HBO's Veep, and then becoming an executive producer on Succession since season one. I talked with Frank about Succession's perspective on American democracy, capitalism, how rich and powerful individuals exert their influence on mere peasants like us. And we talked about how, at its heart, Succession is the story of a broken family desperate for connection. Hey, Frank, how you doing? I'm well. How are you doing? It's I'm good. It's great to catch up, uh, as always. Um, Same here. I, uh, I have been obsessed with succession like uh, most people uh, who have were into television uh, and I you know I, I don't watch all that much TV anymore but this one this one I make a special exception for I, I want to start with with a, a a question about this show that's bigger than the last season of the show um, I want to ask a question about what the meaning of the show is in the sense of it's a show about uh, a media company and the succession of the kids uh, and a media mogul. I just want to start with a with an open kind of question about: Is this show about the wealthy? Is it about the media industry? Is it about I me? Mean, what do you think this show centrally is about? Beyond it just being a show about like a rich family, I would answer the question sort of in a reverse way. It seems to me. You start with characters in a story. So we start with a family and a family where they're, forget about what profession they're in or even with their economic bracket, a family where there's a, a father who doesn't want to let go, who, who is a, a lousy father, plays his kids off each other uh, to, uh, you know, succeed him in the business and, and also for his love as a father uh, who whom he loves most, if at all. And then the other, the other, Aspects or themes, I think, arrive as it does in all good drama f from the characters and, and themselves and their relationships. And so, you know, a lot of people have I, certainly we've discussed it in the room and so on. You know, there's obvious resemblance to to in some ways to King Lear, but it's not like we started and said, let's do King Lear. That and that comparison is somewhat heightened by the fact that Brian Cox, as a stage actor, did one of the great King Lears of the past probably the post-World War II era. But, you know, King Lear could, a modern production could set King Lear at a at a media company and do the same play. And you say, oh, it's it's about a media company. I think we didn't, we, we really, we wanted to tell a story of a family. We wanted to do it in this world, which has such an impact on everybody's lives in this era, this continuing era of, you know, burgeoning mass media that just is, you know, even in the course of the six and a half or seven years we've been working on the show, it's so expanded uh, its reach, but always with the characters. And I think the show works because of the characters as well as they're both as they're written and as they're acted. Um, so sure, it has some it has things to say about the media, about politics, about inequality, about class. But it's hard. It's about three siblings and a parent and a father. The patriarch. Let, let, let's talk about the the media part um, and and your 
relationship with the show. I mean, your background is in at the New York Times, at New York Magazine. Uh, clearly has a lot of uh, a lot of experience in pol- in the political media world uh, that this series uh, depicts. The writing team d- does it turn to you when discussing plots about the news business or how a newsroom operates? In other words, do different writers have different specialties that they bring to the table uh, when writing something like this? Well, first of all, I'm not a writer on the show. I'm a, I'm a, I produce it. So so my role is, I, I mean, do I have ideas or lines that sometimes end up in it? Sure. So I'm, I'm there. It's almost if it were, if, if there were a journalistic equivalent, almost be like being an editor to some extent and reading scripts, talking about scripts. The fact is that, sure, people ask my two cents, but frankly, the level of detail that the writers want, starting with Jesse Armstrong, who created the show, is so intense that I, I can't hold myself out as even a particular expert. And I, and, and, and so we actually, from the very beginning, go on to consultants who were billed on, you know, in the credits for various areas. So for, so for instance, from the very beginning, we've had a, a, a consultant named Marissa Marr, who was for many years covered the media beat, the business side of the media for the Wall Street Journal. She helps us about uh, you know, very specific questions about the media and, and the corporate side of media that I don't know anything about. You know, I, or I know about as a reader of newspapers or hearing gossip around the Times when I was there or whatever. Uh, then uh, this season, where there's a very heavy orientation towards ATN, the fictional network, we brought in, um, uh, and we used him last season too, John Klein, who's a former president of CBS mm-hmm. News and CNN. Uh, because it involves a contested election, Ben Ginsburg, the Bush v. Gore Bush lawyer, um, uh, Eric Schultz, who is a, a strategist and, and media advisor towards Obama and still is post presidency. You know, all sorts. Of, we've even brought in people who know how to write chirons. You know, <laughs> and so so it's and because we're all media junkies on the show, all of us. And um, but basically, I'd say what most distinguishes. The writers, I think, distinguishes my passion for the show and Jesse's and, and all the writers is is the character. So take a writer that I helped recruit who worked on the past two seasons, um, Will Arbery. So Will Arbery is a really, really brilliant young playwright. He was a runner-up for the Pulitzer Prize right before the pandemic. He comes from a, a very, very uh, conservative, intellectual, religious, Catholic family. His breakthrough play... Uh, is set in the world of um, like where Amy Coney comes from, that kind of uh, right-wing Catholic intellectual. So he knows a lot about that. But in his plays, what, the reason why we wanted him to join us is not so much for that expertise, if this is a helpful example, but because he writes these heartbreaking characters, some of whom have hateful politics. And so, every, you know, Lucy Preble, who's a brilliant British playwright who works on the show as a writer wrote the play Enron that was done on Broadway, but she's also a media junkie and and a comedy writer, and so people are sort of well rounded. What we're not doing is a docudrama. And by the way, if you look at Jesse's previous work, uh, a lot of it has nothing to do with politics or media, including his hit British series and and. Um, uh, although I first met him, he wrote one episode on Veep in the, the last episode of season one. That's we we started uh, our creative uh, relationship. So anyway, it's it, it's 
getting the getting the facts right is important and we really want them to be right and we spend a lot of time on it but it's actually that's the, the more journalistic and less creative part of putting together the show you get all the facts right and have a dead show if the characters don't have uh passions and hearts and minds that you care about independently of the subject they're discussing the series is really an incredible critique of capitalism, corporate media, and and obviously, speaking of the characters, uh, the people who, who run those machines and those institutions. It, it feels like one meta takeaway from Succession is that in order to swim in those waters and rise to power, there has to be something inherently broken or inhuman about the way that you operate, the way that you treat other people. Do you think there's any aspect of legacy media, elite media, whatever you want to call it, in, in the real life uh, that this series defends? Or is it all one giant condemnation? It's not really the way we look at it. It's a very dark view of it. Um, and, you know, we're trying to let the characters go where the characters go. So we're not we're not predetermining how people are, are, are going to act. And indeed, one of the big exercises in the room is, right, so this, this story is happening with, say, Tom and Chiv and Greg or whatever. Um, what if Greg felt this way about it? What if Roman felt this way about it? We, we actually play it out to try to find the human truth because really the easy part is Oh, they would do this. They would manipulate the call of an election, uh, you know, a call of an election. That's the easy part. But how everyone behaves in that moment is what gets us there. And and so a lot. It's not ever predetermined. And one of the things that's been exciting about the show is everything's always been on the table, constantly uh, evolving. It it feels like a living organism. It's been enhanced by a cast that. By the end of a season, it's so um, internalized the roles and we'd so internalize them that while they're not writing their own lines, um, occasionally someone will improv a line, but they become part of this organism too. So take something like um, Logan's death. We actually discussed uh, killing him off at, uh, in the first season. But when we made the pilot, which ends with him having a stroke, uh, we had not decided yet that that, that he would live on, and and then we had a when the show was picked up by HBO, we had a three or four month period where we started a writers room and started producing scripts, and it it remained a lively topic for a little bit. We thought we thought about uh, killing him off last season, and we played out the various uh, permutations, and then if we did kill him off, what episode? Um, and and maybe not Jesse's idea was always maybe we don't do it in the last episode of a season with everyone gathered around the deathbed. We sort of did that when it was, he was thought to be dying in episode two of season one anyway. And so everything is sort of open ended rather than predetermined. And there is there is a bigger view, I think, that becomes clear of of the meta picture of where the series ends up, but it's not, nothing I can talk about because it, 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 it will become clear to audiences, I think, in this series finale, which is 90 minutes long. Right. Everyone's waiting who watches the show is waiting eagerly to know what's 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 going to happen. I mean, I I will say that these characters all seem human in the sense that that very few of them are two dimensional. 
right? I mean, like they, they're able to surprise you. They're 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 nuanced. Uh, I mean, some of the the politics of of the characters themselves. I mean, Kendall, for instance, you, you get a sense that he's caught between sort of the corporate world and his his father's politics, which are kind of Rupert Murdoch-y, but he also has, you know, a, a wife or an estranged wife and a family that are presumably kind of more liberal. Uh, and his politics are sort of in that he understands, I think, what his father's politics are, but he also has kind of his own politics and he kind of goes back and forth. And then and then Shiv is obviously uh, very clear. She's she's a Democrat. Let, let's talk about a little bit about that, that choice there, because I think that's actually one of the most profound the important choices that the show made, uh, which is that Shiv is inside of this Rupert Murdoch-ish world mm -hmm. uh, in which she is a known uh, in the press, in public as a Democrat to the point where she was at one point uh, essentially a Democratic consultant for a prominent Democratic senator. Right. That choice doesn't seem like an accident. I just wonder what what the sort of choice matrix was behind that, if you can give us some insight into that, into why and why it was important for her to be, for instance, a, a, a kind of known out there Democrat. I think for drama purposes, you know, I don't think there was any great deliberation about it. I think the fact is you don't want every character to be the same, because mm -hmm. otherwise then you sacrifice drama if everyone's the same. Um, someone like that could exist in a very uh, conservative family, even a conservative media family, whether, and keep in mind, she's a, not the most loyal Democrat in the world, you know, not the most, you know, she's sort of an op somewhat of an opportunistic uh, Democratic centrist is the way I describe her. But, you know, you look at the, the, the whether it be uh, the Murdoch daughter who's uh, trying to be a liberal or, or the Disney niece who's trying to be liberal, you know, or all these families have that person. Uh, and it just makes it more interesting. And, and then I think you characterize the other politics, the other politics you mentioned correctly, but look at a character like Roman, who increasingly seems in this season aligned with uh, uh, Mencken, this, kind of, this sort of populist, quasi-fascist uh, presidential candidate. But is that what he really believes? I don't know if I can tell you the answer to that. Just like, oh, just oh like I, I should be clear. I, th I, I think actually that... One of the things that comes out in these people's politics is that their politics are uh, transactional or if not transactional, they're just sort of yeah. she happens to be a Democrat. He happens to be a Republican or, or aligned with the Republicans right now because that's that, that that's what sort of fits. But I don't think they're ideological at all, although I let, let's let's take a moment. To, to explore that for a second, because in the election episode, so you've seen all of these 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 characters who are sort of they have politics, but the politics are sort of what helps them navigate what they want sort of in the business corporate world. But on the election night, Shiv actually expresses some sort of core ideology, at least about sort of democracy itself there. It actually did get to something core, at least in her. And then, of course, Roman says, you know, nothing really matters, which I want to go into for a second. But but there was kind of a, a, a of an admission that there is like a core in there, which which frankly was a little bit surprising because for a while you're kind of like, I'm not sure these people have a core, right? Like, I'm not sure. I don't know where the core is. On the other hand, 
if Lucas Matson is ready to cozy up to Mencken, she just might lose her course. So exactly, it's, it's, it's complicated. I think the best thing, I think the important thing you said is it's transactional. So they all think of, you know, Kendall thinks of himself as having a core. He has children of color and he doesn't right. want them to have a racist president. And you feel in the moment when he's fighting with his ex-wife, Rafa, you feel he really believes it. But then, you know, something transactional presents itself. And I think that's the the real lesson. It's not, it was fascinating. The ideological point, I just want to, I, I, I don't read everything about succession. First of all, I would have no life if I did. But, <laughs> but I was fascinated that conservative columnists, the Times attempted, to, and certainly people don't have to like the show. I couldn't actually tell whether he liked it or didn't like it. But, but it was fascinating to me about very conservative columnist, uh, Ross Douthat, is how you say his mm -hmm. name. Mm -hmm. So he wrote this argument uh, that I read, stumbled upon a few days ago, where he said, um, you know, there's a lot of good things about the show. It captures the crazy, especially online, right? You know, captures the Mencken's of this world. Uh, it captures um, the cynicism of um, Murdoch-esque executives who parrot, at least pretend to like their stuff. Before. But he said what's left out of it, left out of the show is, he used the phrase, the normal Republicans who don't like the crazy, don't like MAGA, basically, but still participate in conservative media mm -hmm. uh, because they still are more scared of, of uh, the left than they are of the crazy right. Well, the normal Republicans in this show, to my mind, are Kendall, Carl, Hugo, Jerry, yeah, that's right. They're there, and 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 they're presented as complete um, uh, quizlings to this to this horrible thing that's going on at their own company. So I thought it was fascinating. Conservatives didn't want that kind of person, a Peggy Noonan, whatever, is in the show. We're not literally basing it on her or any, but you know, or any editorial board member at the Wall Street Journal. But that's exactly the kind of normal Republican. Who ate and abet the rise of a Trump and ate and abet the rise of a Jared Mencken. So that made me feel very good about the political positioning of the show because it really got, got on the nerve of someone who didn't see his own group was represented right in front of his eyes by a half dozen characters. Now, I want to talk about Mencken because, because um, I, I find him to be not as odious a character as he is referred to being in the show. Now, I don't know what this says about my own politics because I, I don't consider myself to have politics aligned with Jared Mankin, but I, I, I've, I've been dying to ask you this, this question. So there, there's not a ton of you seeing Jared Mankin be a horrible right-wing fascist, right? It's like referred to as like, he's a right-wing fascist, like he's this horrible person. And there's a lot of like assumptions baked in. But when you see him at least in many, I mean, there's some parts where he's talking to Roman and he's sort of wheeling and dealing, but in sort of public, he is presenting himself as this principled, ideological, you may not agree with me, but I'm here to tell the truth kind of guy, which contrasts with the other characters on the show who we just talked about have this sort of transactional, I have no real like com compass kind of person. And you, you, you can almost see the appeal of a politician like that. 
in a world where people perceive the elites to have no moral compass at all. In other words, this whole I'll vote for somebody who's got principles, even if I don't agree with them, uh, to to essentially detonate a bomb on a completely corrupt sort of corporate blob. Uh, what do you like? So I, I just ask for your like response on that. Well, I feel there's times where it's clear he's quite right wing, particularly in that first last season, that that meeting, that conversation in the bathroom, the hotel bathroom with him and and. Uh, 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 Roman. Um, but what I like about, for first of all, you have in it, and this applies to several other characters um, on the show, uh, you have an actor of tremendous wit and charm in the, in the form of Justin Kirk in this case. Who, great actor. Great, great actor. I've followed him since he was a, you know, a young actor in the theater, wonderful actor. And so he's, he's, you know, for years we've been talking about what if there were a Trump who really were seductive and not a fucking, right, you know, right. uh, you know, uh, bully and asshole in public. This is that I think this is not how this is my words, not the show's words. He is sort of the platonic version of someone like that who is smart and witty and um, uh, tough. That's that's a much more interesting villain. Yes. You know, and and uh, uh, he's he's not a buffoon. He's not Roger Ailes. You know, he's not he's not Trump. Uh, he's not even Josh Halley. You know, he he. And so, I think you're right to feel that way. But it but you know, it's the same thing with some other characters on the show, including at times Kendall. Yeah, oh uh, yeah, including for sure. at times Logan, who is sometimes the smartest in the room and doesn't suffer fools gladly and has some kind of self-awareness and and again i think the decision there is just to not make him the cliche fire breathing to not make him brett kavanaugh not make him trump not make him one of those uh, thugs i i do think i do think the liberal i wouldn't say a liberal vanity of the show but i i do think there's something baked in which is i and i frankly i said this to adam mckay our you know who was involved in creating the show i said to mckay i was like listen man the thing that freaks me out about Jared Mencken is, is that the show is portraying the election as close. But if the Republican Party nominated a Jared Mencken, like, I think there's a world in which that election is not close, where that election is a 400 electoral vote. Now, maybe not because this, the, the red blue map. But I guess what I'm getting at is I feel like the scary part, uh, a lot of people in the election episode took away, oh, they remember the election night, Donald Trump 2016, by the way, I, it, it, which hit me pretty hard because I was actually hanging out with some of the cast that night because they were in New York for the table read at Adam's place. Yeah, we had the, we had the, we had the table read that, that uh, morning. And the only reason I wasn't at that party is I had to write the about the election for a New York magazine on deadline that night. I saw Jeremy Strong at the opening of, uh, of, of Don't Look Up, and I didn't, I didn't know if he'd remember me. And he came right up to me and was like, man, I still think about those conversations we had that. I was in, you know, in 2016. You, you and McKay freaked me out. You said it looked like Trump was going to win, and I didn't want to believe you. And it, 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 it actually happened. But, but, I, but I, think, I think what I'm, what I'm getting at is, is that a lot of people seem to take away, oh, I remember it's, you know, the night of 2016, how scary it is, and it was all close, and who's going to call it? I took away part of that from that episode was, you're being nice to me by saying this is, would have been a close election, but I see in Jared Mankin if the Republican Party ever actually figured it out 
and could could create a nominating process where they could get a Jared Mankin, who on the surface seems likable, charismatic, principled, et cetera, et cetera. That's a nightmare scenario, I think, for the country. And I've always said that and, and wrote about it. I mean, I, yes, you know, thank God, if we have to have a Trump, thank God it's Trump who is uh, unappealing and incompetent for the mm-hmm. most part. That said, I think you can't do the literal translation to our fictional world because you don't know anything about Jimenez's opponent. Sure, for all, sure. For all the audience knows, Jimenez is, you know, Jack Kenny times three in his charisma and so on. He's not, he's hardly even seen in the show. Right. And so I, so I wouldn't, you're, I get your thesis, but I think it's, it's sort of apples and oranges to compare it to a fictional world like ours. Sure. I just know that like the scary thing about Jared Mencken, in my view, is seeing kind of granted in little, little, little bites is seeing what a charismatic, seemingly principled, somewhat appealing right wing quasi-authoritarian, quasi-fascist candidate, what it could look like in the real world. Now, granted, with an asterisk, if the Republican Party could actually nominate somebody like that, which I'm not sure that they're... And by the way, just to question the, uh, the premise of it, a premise that I've shared and have been in print about in years past, it may be that those two things don't really go together. It may be, you know, Hitler was com- was comical and was a you know, comical lunatic. I'm not, I'm not making a glib... Hitler comparison to either Mencken or Trump, but but just you know sometimes it, you know Joe McCarthy was a, a, you know a crazy person and came across that way on television. So it's all very very speculative. But the fact is, and and and, it, and also we look at the Republican Party field; they don't have that person. I mean, no, they, they don't. don't. Ron DeSantis no. is not. Ron DeSantis, I think, thinks he's that person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but he's you know comes across as a child you know really anyway no no you're, you're right that's what, and that's what I mean like I McKay and I were debating I mean, this was a couple of years ago I was like man you know I think if the Republicans figured out to go like one or two clicks more normal from Trump a kind of smart authoritarian that would be dangerous and McKay he took he was like I don't think their the Republican Party's like nominating process can produce that. I think they're going to produce like Marjorie Taylor Greene or like something even more circus and even more zany because that's the sort of arms race on their side. Adam may be right about that, but it's also or not, you know, because look, the whole thing that's going on now with abortion, suburbia, they 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 don't know what the hell they're doing. But but I would go back to your original premise if. Someone like a Mencken played by someone like Justin Kirk with that kind of uh, mixture of sort of charisma and gravitas and conservative politics were running against um, a generic Democrat, we'll say Joe Biden. It might not be close, but he's running against Jimenez and he doesn't really exist in the Republican Party. So and, uh, you know, for all we know, Jimenez survived assassination attempt, whatever, you know. So. Sure, sure. So let me let me ask you the the question about the the media reaction to the show. This show has a particularly uh, uh, big and um, very online and very excited to be a fan of the show audience among the media. Uh 
which d- is not surprising. I mean, there's, you know, the old broadcast news uh, uh, line for, you know, never forget where the real story, not them, uh, which is one of the great, great lines in all of movie history, in my view. I agree. Uh, I love yeah, that movie. Such, yeah. a, such a great movie, such a great line. It completely holds but, up. But it holds up better than Network. For me. I, I like watch go. it like once every three months just because it's it, it, it holds up so much. It's almost it's almost eerie. But I th- but the the question sometimes comes up for me. It's like, does the elite legacy media that sort of blob not understand that there's like a deeply cutting critique and sort of simmering anger at this media blob that they're in? I, mean, I don't know the answer to that, and I suspect it depends on who you talk to, but. Uh, look, because there's also, as, as you know, as a journalist, you know, certain kind of masochism and being a journalist anyway. Sure. So maybe you, you want that. But I think that, um, yeah, I think it's hard to generalize about that. I'm sure some people uh, think it's glamorizing. Well, I can't imagine anyone thinks it's glamorizing unless they work for Fox News. I, I, I'd be fascinated to know what people who work for Fox News or Newsmax or whatever think of it. You know? No, I mean, listen, there's there's not if I'm not mistaken, there's not one character in this show who's like an intrepid journalist. Right. I mean, I, I don't think that character anyone who's a journalist. Yeah, They're right. Really exactly. Just, I don't, it's like yeah. me, there's a difference between media and journalism. Right. Like this is media. Right. We don't really have it. You're right. We don't have an intrepid journalist. We have we have media. We have anchor people. We have uh, 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 Tucker Carlson-esque, uh, you know, opinionator. Um and it's not a show about journalism, really. It's a, it's about a, an empire that controls journalism or tries to. I wonder, like, is there any, like, consternation or, like, why is the media – like, you want the media to like your stuff because they're – I mean, everybody likes approbation. But is there – is I wonder, is there, like, any, like, wait a minute, you're not – I don't want you to like this because, like, it's kind of about you. No, no, we don't – but look, there are people who don't like it. Look, when the first season, we got – Really crappy reviews, both in the Times and the, the Washington Post. No, I, I don't think. No, I, that's not the way I think about it. Maybe other people do, but no. We, we, and also, you just can't generalize. Um, look, I have a lot of friends in the media who are fans of the show, and I think they're sophisticated viewers of it and are willing, you know, like the show, even if it attacks. Uh, and, and they don't not saying, "Oh, I like the show because it so glamorizes our business." I think they. It expresses some of their own complaints about the business and not just about people like the Murdochs or, you know, the others like them. So let me ask one one final question here just about sure. the there is at least among these specific characters, but obviously these characters are are in some ways placeholders for for larger forces um, to go back to this question of amorality. Right. Like they're a transactional ideology. This vision of kind of let's just call it corporate media is mm-hmm. a vision of people who make these decisions don't they have fairly fluid principles. They have fairly fluid uh, political affiliations, fairly fluid ideologies that change in any different uh, circumstance. So if that's the vision that's a pretty, as we said, it's a pretty dark vision. Like, is that just like the reality in your view, having worked in the, in in media for as long as you have? Like, is that the reality that's going to be an unchanging reality? Or is there like a different version 
in a in a in an alternate future or in a different country, a different society, where media looks different than this, where there are some basic principles, where it's not so dark. You know, it's a great question, I, I, uh, David. I can't say I know the answer. And it, media is changing and evolving so fast; it's hard to know. So t- let's take the Times, for instance. The Times is one of the last of these big companies uh, that's still owned by the original family, which may violate them at times, but fundamentally is quite principled. Um, although we have a family, slightly Salzberger-esque, the Pierce family yeah. in succession, yeah. that, uh, you know, uh, Nan Pierce, the right amount of money is like the Bancroft family sold out the journal to uh, Murdoch. So look, look, at, look at the Times, which is thankfully in a very successful period right now commercially. It's had real bumps during the course of the digital uh, 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 you know, transition, but it's it's a success by you know, particularly with games and recipes or underwriting a lot of the news gathering, which is fine. There's nothing unprincipled about that. It's a, a way to survive, but it's an indication to be about how much things are changing. That's sort of the last thriving family-owned uh, company, and um, what lies ahead. Who knows? You know, who would have thought what would have happened as happened to Time Inc., to the Tribune Company, right, right. to CBS News, um, to CNN? They've all been terribly compromised. They're way removed from their original uh, uh, missions for the most part. The Washington Post also had one of these great families, the Graham family. No, obviously, it's now Jeff Bezos. It's it's doing okay, and it hasn't been compromised. But how long will that last? If that billionaire loses interest in it, or decides, you know, we've seen, you know, next it's in the hands of an Elon Musk or a Sam Zell or every you, you know, you want to mention. So I think we don't know, and I think it's and 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 the, all the rules of it are changing so quickly. It will be different. It some of it may well be honorable. Some of it now. Is on there are many good things happening in journalism um, if you know where to look, uh, and there are plenty of principled people who are in it for the right reasons, not necessarily the owners, but occasionally an owner or two. But do people even want what we think of as the news media and the way we think of it ten years from now, or are they rather the cliched, stupid version? You know, get their news from TikTok and extrapolate what the facts are from the culture. I just don't know. Uh, and uh, I never could have predicted half the things that have happened. No, I know. And by the way, the the the, the Matson character kind of gets at this. He's sort of like this kind of weirdo, like he doesn't have real like media experience as far as you can tell about what his company does. And he this is just a business play for him. And you're like, at one level, you're like, you're kind of ridiculous. You're going to own a giant media company from a family owned, uh, you know, Rupert Murdoch or the Rupert Murdoch as character. Say what you will about him. He, you know, that that character, uh, Logan, is a media professional, a media builder, a media expert. Right. And Madsen right. comes as sort of a novice. And you're like, this. he seems ridiculous, but he also he actually kind of seems like the future. Right. It kind of seems like in this crazy world. He does. And by the way, that's another character on the show I'm very proud of because that guy is not a character. He's not a Silicon Valley cliche. He's right, not Elon right. Musk. He's somewhat like uh, Mencken, not in terms of his politics necessarily, the extent that he has any. But in tr- he's a he has a lot of charm and wit, 
And, you know, and, and, uh, and, and, and again, a fan, Alexander Skarsgård, fantastic. He steals actor. every scene he's in. I mean, it must be annoying just, to the other actors because he just like no, steals every no. scene. He's I'm a, kidding. He, no, yeah. he, he's also a fantastic uh, colleague and fantastic guy. But, and we're very lucky to have him uh, because there is a, you know, you lose something when you lose Brian Cox at the center of the show. It's right, not like that's right, a free, right, right. a freebie. One of the things I just want to say about just in thinking about the show, if you have another minute, just about why we don't think in terms of starting with everything isn't predetermined, the politics, the themes, the moral judgments. One of the most interesting things for me watching this show and creatively being in the process now for, for really it's almost seven years is it really this going back to this idea that it's a living organism? It really does evolve. So there's a history in the show of actors who were cast in secondary or tertiary roles who are so good and make it so alive that we end up building out the roles for them. And 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 so, for instance, the classic example is Jay Smith Cameron, who plays Jerry. That was originally. Uh, uh, conceived of as a, a man. He was Jerry, J-R-R-Y. <laughs> and then we thought it'd be good, good to have, you know, mix it up, have a woman executive of this conservative hidebound corporation. And then you have this brilliant actress who's been a great stage actress for years in New York. And, and it becomes really interesting in her relationship on screen with, with, with Kieran, whom they're friends that she, they, her, James Smith Cameron's husband, Kenny Lonigan, is a great playwright and, and screenwriter, and they've both acted together in things of, of, of Kenny's. A more recent example, this, this uh, a very young actress named Zoe Winters, she was, who plays Carrie, the, the, the last mistress of Logan, mm-hmm. the young mm-hmm. mistress. She's great. So she, She's great. So she, she was invisible to most audiences because she was in the show beginning maybe late season two, but just as a nameless, faceless aide to Logan, usually carrying a phone behind him, we saw her in a play by the aforementioned Will Arbery uh, off Broadway, uh, and and uh, we were thinking of we want to give him a younger mistress that would thicken the successions too, and we said, "Shit, let's just make it this this character because this actress can do it." Alexander Skarsgård was always going to be a high-profile person in the show, but I think Jesse Armstrong, as the rest of us were, was so taken with what an uncliched version and fresh version of this character he did that that we build him out. And to some extent, that may be even true of uh, Justin and, and Menken, as Menken. And there are other examples, too. And that what that says about the show to me is it's not, a, it's as you said, it's not ideological and it's not about fitting people to a message. It's about the people having a li- lives of their own and the message evolves out of the most truthful presentation we can make of these living characters, both in how they're written and how they're acted. Okay, so that's a that's a really important segue. And I know I said my last question was my last one, but, but it's a question for you. That's about you. Mm-hmm. You are somebody that I came to know through your writing during the Bush and the Obama years. Uh, and you really, I'm, I'm not just saying this because you're here, you were like one of the very few people who I would read and be like, 
thank God someone gets it like at a deeper non bullshit level. Right. Like I I really mean it. Like it was for, 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 for like thinking people who didn't just want red, blue stuff, who wanted like a deeper, more honest analysis. Like I felt like you were, you were like a, like a beacon of light in a really dark time. And I, and I want to be clear. I mean that both through the Bush years and into the Obama years, the financial crisis. I mean, you have, you have a piece that I just, sent to a friend last week about the Obama, like they were a younger person. I was like, you know, Obama, the financial crisis, like he wasn't all perfect. Like just read this one piece. All of that is context for a question about, so you, you, you were doing this, then you move into this kind of work where you're helping create these shows, which are a portrayal in, in Veep of the sort of the political world of uh, 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 succession, the corporate media world. What was that transition like of like weighing in every week, sort of very publicly in the uh, identifiable political world and then transitioning to the world that you're in? Do you miss weighing in? Is this another? Is this like a different way to weigh in? In a, in a, it, it may not be because you just you, you sort of are saying, look, it's not it's not an ideological show. It's 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 about the characters. Like I just wonder, like your own kind of work satisfaction, how you think about it, that transition, because that's a big transition. It is and it isn't. It's a very good question. I'll try to give you the short answer. First of all, I grew up in Washington D.C. around politicians. I. My family was not in politics, but I was always a news and political junkie, but I was also a theater nut. And I was obsessed with the theater and still am. And indeed, before I was an op-ed columnist at the Times, I was the chief drama critic for 13 years and a period of the Reagan era. And indirectly, a lot of that, one of the big plays I reviewed, for instance, was Angels in America and August Wilson plays was dealing with politics. As a columnist, um, I started to get I, the, the Bush years. I really felt very strongly about, as as you were just saying, and I felt very strongly about Obama, including when he was less successful than one might want. But at the time, someone asked me if I wanted to join a group of several journalists that work at HBO on the side. It was a side gig at the, when I was still columnist at the Times to talk about programming at a time when they were going through a big transition. I didn't think it would necessarily lead to anything. And I, I have to say, I fell in love with the work. And I just, and I was bored writing a column. And this is, frankly, it's been 14 years now that I've been involved in this stuff. And I don't, not only doing, I don't, I never miss drama criticism. Maybe it's, I have a crazy personality or a disloyal, I don't, I don't, I don't miss being a columnist. By the way, I kept writing serious, in my view, and, and even more, I hope even deeper opinion pieces for the Times and New York Magazine mm-hmm. as I began this career. But ultimately, the work, particularly when succession kicked in on top of V, became so enormous, I had to cut it back. I started writing one piece a month for New York Magazine. There was one piece every three months. I'm still on staff there and and may yet write again. But this is just inc- combines my own idiosyncratic interests, love of the theater, and uh, the American scene and commenting in the American scene. One other thing that relates to journalism about this, one of the things I missed in journalism in the later years is I liked the newsroom. I'm sure you felt the same way. I like walking in. I like the camaraderie, the kind of front page-ish atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Once digitalization happened, 
it vanished. There was no reason for a newsroom. No one had to come in to turn in their copy. You literally had to physically turn it in, you know, when I began at the Times or do it on a dedicated word processor in the newsroom. You go on a set for a show. There are 150 people. There are brilliant people. There are artists. There are uh, uh, cameramen or artists. There are makeup people. There are stagehands. There are actors. There are people who are hacks. There are people who are divas. There are all of that. And it felt like a newsroom to me. Only the be- But the best thing is you can make it all up. <laughs> and still have to. <laughs> and, 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 and so um, it's, it's, it's just been a blast. And I think like a lot of people in succession, it's been such a great ride. It's hard to let it go. But I think we're letting go in the right way and getting off the stage when before we start repeating ourselves too much. Oh, and and, and I should say that one of the best uh, little commentaries I saw on social media was they and, and if you want to answer this, you can or we can just let it lie is whether the show is ending by making the characters so horrible that you're like you as the viewer is like okay with it ending like it's like dude i can't take any more of you like kendall or, or like <laughs> no i think i think i i you know i think not i think i think that jesse always had an idea of where the show would end and i'm not talking about story points here i really mean thematically what his final verdict was on these people and 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 this uh, corporation and it will become very apparent, I think, uh, this is not a spoiler, it'll become very apparent um, in the finale. And so we always knew that destination. And the question was always how getting there, when, you know, how many times can you have a conversation about who's going to succeed Logan? Right, you know, right. Really, mm-hmm. there is, at a certain point, that can wear out its welcome. Um, and what's interesting, people both in the business, in the television or movie business and in you know, other people I know, when we announced it was the final season, people said, oh, well, if it's the final season, you had to change the ending. And I said, no, we always knew what the ending was. It's not like we're going to, I spoiled alert, we're not killing everyone off in an earthquake. You know right. what I mean? Okay. And it's right. not that kind of show. And so the question was, what was the best way to get there to be true to the characters? I don't think we ever had a discussion Oh, these characters are so hateful that people will be sick of them because people love them. People love go totally. figure, but people love Roman. They love cousin Greg. They love Logan. And so, no, I think people are sorry to see them goodbye, say goodbye to them because they're very human, very flawed humans, very unlikable in many ways. But you follow them because at some level they're human. Totally. Although I, I have to say, I did remark to my wife on the last episode, I said, the only character, like, I like watching these characters. Uh, like, do I like them as people? No. But the character I do like as a person is James Cromwell. That character, I want to hang out with him. Like, I want to hang out, like, his oh. rage in there. <laughs> like, I want to hang out with that guy. Oh, my God. That you, that eulogy. Amazing. I'm so at the church. And and by the way, Jamie is sort of you know he he's constantly being arrested at protests. Totally, he's like a yeah, he's like a it's perfect. But but he's also just a fantastic character actor. You think of L.A. Confidential, all the things he's done, and the scenes with him and Nick Braun as Greg earlier in the show. Greg has a whispered line that I love in this last episode where he goes, "That was a good hard take. It was a good you're like like six six seconds before he's like, don't go up there, don't go up there.' It was like." Exactly. The same guy was going to sue Greenpeace. You know, it's like, anyway, 
It's, and and there's, a wit, there's a wit, and there's even a wit, even though uh, uh, Ewan has an obvious contempt for the entire family and, and certainly for Greg, but there's a wit in their uh, shadow boxing, you know, and that, that just, oh, God. But also in that last speech, that eulogy, beyond the, um, the politics of it and what he has to say about Waystar and Logan's media, but the, uh, thinking that he gave his sister polio, all that stuff is just so powerfully affecting however much you might hate Logan. It's just, it's real. It's real. Yes. And I think, I, I think that's, I think that is why people really love this show. And I cannot wait until, uh, until Sunday to see it. I, I do, as I've said to a bunch of people lately, like I've got two things right now that are like my, my like guilty pleasures. It's Denver Nuggets basketball and succession. So I cannot wait uh, till Sunday. Uh, Frank Rich, I should remind everybody, is an executive producer on the HBO series Succession. Uh, And I should mention also White House Plumbers, which I am watching and I also love. And he still is a writer at large for New York Magazine. Uh, The series finale of Succession airs on HBO this Sunday. Frank Rich, thank you for taking time. Thank you for your writing in the past. And thank you for being part of this show. And I I should add one last thing. The fact that your writing, that I know you from your writing, means that I am ascribing uh, a large part of the genius of this show to you. Whether it's time, whether it's deserved or not, I can't see behind the scenes, but like I, I, that's that's in my that's in like my narrative. So like all you know, big credit to you for 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 helping make such a great show. Thanks again, man. Thank you. Great to talk to you, David. As always. That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Levertime Premium, you get to hear next week's bonus episode, my interview with Adolph Reed about his new book, No Politics But Class Politics. To listen to Levertime Premium, just head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber. When you do, you get access to all of Lever's premium content, including our weekly newsletters and our live events. And that's all for just eight bucks a month or 70 bucks for the year. One last favor. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Levertime on your favorite podcast app. The app you are listening to right now, take 10 seconds and give us a positive review in that app. And make sure to check out all of the incredible reporting our team has been doing over at levernews.com. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Rock the boat. The Lever Time Podcast is a production of The Lever and The Lever Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, David Sirota. Our producer is Frank Capello with help from The Lever's lead producer, Jared Jacang Mayer. 